Lord God, thank you that you give us kids that we can help grow uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I thank you for Lila coming to know you this past week and committing her life to you. Uh, God, for these kids that are going downstairs, I pray that you would go before them, go beside them, go behind them, and Lord, may they experience you as they're down there. I give the, the teachers that are not only down there, but upstairs with the toddlers and with the nursery, give them grace and patience with these kids. And Lord, uh, we ask that you would teach us too as we're here in this sanctuary. May the voices that we hear be the voice of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So talk to me like I'm a second grader. Thanks, Scott. (laughs) Talk to me like I'm a second grader. That is what Abby's heard me say that. That is what I will say when I'm talking to somebody who has a lot more expertise in something other than what I know when they're trying to explain something to me. Okay, for example, a computer programmer or someone who knows phones really, really well. Okay, may say to me, hey, James, I'm so excited because I've been writing this code. And, and in the code, it means that when I'm on the home page of the website, the pictures automatically keep cycling through. Do you get it? Do you want to hear more? And I'm like, uh, talk to me like I'm a second grader. We know several mechanics in this building. One of them just left to go downstairs, so it's probably a good thing. Because recently a mechanic said to me, hey, so there's, uh, you've been having some oil consumption issues on your 2014 Subaru. Um, if you want, you can bring it in and get a whole new short block. What do you think? Uh, Jeff, talk to me like I'm a second grader. And he did. It was wonderful. So often, the the people with additional letters after their name, the people with degrees hanging on their wall, the ones with certificates of completion, the the ones that have the most years of experience on their resume, those are the ones who struggle the most to understand certain, certain things. And oftentimes, the best way to help them understand is to simplify it and tell them a story. To simplify it and tell them a story. This morning, we are continuing on with our Lenten sermon series titled, With Jesus. Now, on Ash Wednesday, we spent time in Matthew chapter 6 and in Joel, and we got to hear, we got to sense Jesus asking us, where is your heart? Last week, we got to spend some time with Jesus in the wilderness. We got to spend time watching him get baptized when the heavens were open up and the dove descended and God said, you're my son and I'm well pleased. And then as Jesus came out still dripping wet, we followed him being led by the spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, which was known as the desolation. And we got to watch as the devil tempted him, tested him uh, for three different temptations. At the end of last week, I asked you guys, are we ready to respond in the same manner that Jesus did, to respond using Scripture when we are tested, because that will happen. Today, we get to spend time with Jesus after dark. We get to spend time with him and Nicodemus. So let's see if we can put ourselves in the story. You got to hear it read earlier during the worship time. Let's see if we can see into the darkness at this This person who walks by, stately looking, older, devout, and religious. They're coming to spend time with 
Jesus. Put yourself in the story. Perhaps the night air is cool because nights in that part of the world are cool. Perhaps it's quiet. The only sounds you hear are crickets and maybe the neighbor's dog rummaging through the trash. Perhaps you you see, you have to squint to see this, this guy walk by. So let your mind's eye adjust to the light. We're in John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay, so here's this guy, Nicodemus. I'm going to call him Nick sometimes because it's just a lot shorter, and that way it's almost like we're familiar with him. The text does not describe Nick too much, but in what it tells us, we know a lot about him. The final phrase of that verse says he is a ruler of the Jews. So as a ruler, he's more than likely part of the ruling party, which was the Sanhedrin. Now, if you know your gospel story well, you'll know that it was the Sanhedrin that arrested Jesus, that convicted Jesus, that sent him to Pilate to be sentenced to death. Nicodemus is part of the Jewish Supreme Court. He's way up there. Now, the text also tells us that he's a Pharisee. You guys have heard me describe Pharisees before. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail today because it helps us understand who this man is. Okay? The Pharisees were a part of the Jews, a select group of Jews, never more than 6,000 men, that were known as the Brotherhood. And they joined this brotherhood by, in front of three other guys, swearing that for the rest of their life, they would do all they could to follow the scribal law. Now, that meant they were going to follow the first five books of the Bible. Every word, because for them it was a deadly sin to to take out or to add a word. But not just the first five books. They were also swearing to follow the interpretation of the law. In the Bible, you you see the the phrases, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were, were the guys that sat around, and they looked at the first five books of the Bible, and they they elaborated on what each law meant. He said, huh, if it says this, well, it means this, 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 and this. And the Pharisees were the ones who would spend the rest of their lives following every jot and tittle, every I dotted, every T cross. That's what they committed to. So let me, let me give you some examples. The law, these are all about Sabbath. The law said you cannot work on the Sabbath. So the Sadducees would say, well, what does that mean? One example You can't tie a knot. You can't tie a knot that a sailor would use. You can't tie a knot that a camel driver would use because those knots require two hands to tie and untie. But they said, if you can tie and untie a knot with one hand, it's not work. So, ladies, you could tie your bonnets and your corsets because you could do that with one one hand, and it it would not be wrong. The Pharisees knew this. Every jot, every... Every I dotted, every T crossed. Okay, interpretation of the law. The law said you could not journey on a Sabbath. So what constitutes a journey? Well, the guys sitting around that were elaborating on what that law meant said that you can't go more than 1,000 yards. You can't walk more than 1,000 yards. So if you walk 502 yards away from your house, you can't walk back because that gets you to 1,004. But... If the day before the Sabbath, you tie a rope 
two hands, you can use a knot because it's the day before the Sabbath, and you tie it all the way to the house on the far side of the block. I don't care if it's 5,000 yards away. If you tie a rope connecting the two houses, that house becomes one, and you can walk in between them as much as you want. Every I dotted, every T crossed. This is what the Pharisees were trying to follow. Okay, the Sabbath said you cannot carry a burden. So what is a burden? Somebody had to define it. And they said a burden is defined as food equal in weight to a dried fig. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Milk enough for one swallow. Honey enough to put on a wound. Oil enough to anoint the small member of your family. You can't anoint the tall ones, but the small ones you can anoint. Okay, and water enough to moisten eye if you get a scratch in it. Every I dotted, every T crossed. The Pharisees spent their lives following this. I mean, the, the rules, the regulations, and the evasions piled up by the hundreds and thousands as the law was meticulously studied and examined. And a man like Nicodemus would have spent his entire life trying to follow, attempting to follow every minute detail. To him, to the Pharisees, this was religion. This was worship. This was pleasing to God. This was serving God. It was devout. That's who Nicodemus would have been. I can't imagine the pressure he must have lived under to follow all of those rules and regulations and the interpretations of those rules and regulations. Every I dotted, every T crossed. Nicodemus, got a picture of who he is? Let's keep going. Verse 2. After dark one evening, Nicodemus came to speak with Jesus. Why after dark? Why at night? Most of us have been taught that he came at night because he didn't want the rest of his brotherhood to see. Right? He came because it was kind of sneaky. He wanted to make sure he could ask these questions when nobody else was around. I read something this past week, though, that caught my attention. It intrigued me. Apparently, in that day... In the days of Jesus, the rabbis declared that the best time to study the law was at night. Therefore, by coming at night, Nicodemus was coming to Jesus when he would have a private, undisturbed conversation. Nicodemus would have seen Jesus during the day when crowds were following him, when the masses were gathered around. And if he wanted to have a one-on-one conversation, he knew that the only time he could go was at night. So I'm going to give Nick the benefit of the doubt and say he wasn't trying to be sneaky. He just wanted to have a genuine conversation with Jesus, uninterrupted. After dark one evening, Nick came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, initially when I read that, I felt some tension. I wondered who Nicodemus was really speaking for when he said, we all know. Because if you look through the stories of the Gospels, you'll know that the people who had the most problems with Jesus were the Pharisees. They're the ones who had the most contention with him, the ones that got into the most heated arguments with him. They were the ones who multiple times, at least three that I could find, Mark 8, Matthew 16, and Matthew 12, three times they said, show us a miraculous sign to prove who you are, to prove where you get your authority. So when Nicodemus came and said, we all know that you came from God, I've got to think he was coming on his own behalf, not on behalf of the brotherhood. I think Nicodemus saw something in Jesus that made him think, huh, I need to ask some some questions to this guy. 
I need to have a deep conversation with him. It's the middle of the night. Jesus gets a knock on the door. Okay? Peeks through the curtain, as any good person would, right? Getting a knock on the door at night. And he sees a member of the Sanhedrin. He sees a religious elite, a, a man who was a professor of religion. And he greets Jesus, as we have just seen in verse 2. This week, as I, as I purposely put myself into the story, I wondered, what was Jesus thinking at that time? And I wonder if Jesus was thinking to himself, yes, finally, finally a smart guy that I can talk to. I mean, someone who studied religion, someone that I can use big words with, someone who I can share these big ideas I have with, because not to throw the masses under the bus or anything, but they don't always understand. So finally, this is James speculating. Okay, I wonder if Jesus was thinking that. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know you're from God. Your miracles prove this. And Jesus lets him in and responds, I tell you the truth. Unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I see this as Jesus saying, hey, Nick, let's, let's talk. Let's look at how you've been doing religion and let's really dialogue. Let's push this to some depth. Tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. The word we translate as again in the Greek has three different meanings. It means from the beginning, completely or radically. It could mean again, as in for a second time, which this kind of looks like what Nicodemus took it as. Or it could mean from above, therefore from God. Now today, 2,000 years later, we, we look at those three definitions and think, yeah, all, all three are right. They all fit. In fact, one person wrote brilliantly, they said, to be born again is to undergo such a radical change that it is like a new birth. It is to have something happen to the soul which can only be described as being born all over again. And the whole process is not a human achievement because it comes from the grace and power of God. So three different meanings. Nicodemus was a smart guy. He would have known all three of those different meanings. And you can tell by his response to Jesus that he's a little bit confused. Verse 4. What do you mean? Asked Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now looking at Nicodemus' response, it might be easy for us to say, Oh, come on, dude, you are not a second grader. That's one of those duh moments. We, we might think that because we know the rest of the story, but what if the, the question was not a dumb question? What if it was not a childish question? What if this question actually demonstrates a yearning and a longing from Nicodemus to understand? What if this question demonstrated a yearning and a longing from Nicodemus to understand? I love what one commentator writes. He, he puts himself in Nicodemus' shoes and, and says, Jesus, you, you talk about being born again. You, you talk about this radical fundamental change, which is so necessary. I know it's necessary, Nicodemus would have said, but, but in my experience, it's so impossible. There's nothing I would like more than that. 
But you might as well tell me, a full-grown man, to enter my mother's womb and be born all over again. You see, it's not the desirability of the change that Nicodemus is having problems with. Oh, he desires it. But it's the possibility that he sees. See, Nicodemus is against the eternal question of a person who wants to be changed but cannot change themselves. He's up against the eternal question of a person who wants to be changed but cannot change himself. He has been trying since he took that oath of the brotherhood to change himself. Every I dotted, every T crossed. And he would have known the scriptures. Jeremiah 33 and Ezekiel chapter 11, both of them, it talks about getting a new heart, getting a new spirit, having a new covenant. He would have known these. And my guess is that he had spent hours and days and years in his life trying to get himself to that place where he had that new heart. But in coming to Jesus, in trying so hard, he's saying, I don't get it. How? How does that that happen? If we're looking at the rest of the conversation as Jesus trying to answer that longing, then it kind of changes the tone that we traditionally read the rest of this passage with. Because Nicodemus in verse 4 says, what do you mean? And Jesus replied in verses 5 through 8. He says, I assure you, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. What I see taking place in this conversation is this. The very first thing we see Jesus say in verse 3, to me, is like seminary language. It is a Greek word that has three different meanings. That's higher education. And then when Nicodemus struggles to get it, I see Jesus saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to simplify a little bit. And I'm going to compare it to some things here on earth that you might get, right? It's as if Jesus is saying, Nick, Nick, this is true. You can't get into the kingdom on your own attempts. You, you can't get in without being washed and cleansed, and the cleansing and the power only comes from God. Because, Nick, the only you can do so much. Human effort, our translation says life, can only produce so much human effort, life. But when God's doing the work, God can produce something amazing. He can produce the life that I'm telling you about. Only the Spirit can do that. That's why I'm telling you, you must be born again, which, remember, means from above. Nick, what if I simplify this even more? What if I talk about something you can, you can see, right? You can hear the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going, but you can see the effects of the wind. You can see the power. You can see it working. It's the same with the Spirit of God. You can see it working. You can see the activity. He's in people's lives, but nobody can explain how the Spirit gets there. That's what I see Jesus saying to Nicodemus. The challenge for Nicodemus is this is so far outside his box. So far outside his box that he just can't get it. Jesus, the wind is unpredictable. It's chaotic. Yes, it it could cause some energy on the windmills in the Columbia Gorge, but realistically, 
You can't tame the wind. The religion I follow, Nicodemus might have been saying, it's not like that. It's rules, it's regulations, it's neat, it's tidy. You can stick it in a box. So essentially, all that is summed up in Nicodemus' response in verse 9. How are these things possible? He asked. How are these things possible? Now, the next three verses, a lot of people have taught and written about them being Jesus chastising Nicodemus, him kind of scolding and correcting him. But if we're looking at this story through the lens of Nicodemus longing and yearning to understand, then this takes a different turn and a different tone. Verse 10, Jesus replied, you're a respected Jewish teacher and and you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we see and what we know, and, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? It's as if Jesus is saying, oh, Nick, Nick, I, I can tell you're working really hard to understand this, but you're just not getting it, are you? How, how are you going to understand? How are you going to believe if... The things I tell you about things that happen on earth, if you don't get. How are you going to get it if I start talking about things of heaven? I mean, the rebirth, born from above, all these things are confusing. If Jesus really sees the longing and the yearning in Nicodemus' heart, i got to think maybe he's grieving a little bit with Nicodemus, that he doesn't get it. And Nick, you're, you're the teacher. You're the religious professor. You're teaching my brothers and sisters. You're teaching my people. I want you to get it. So he continues on in verse 13. He says, no one's ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. Okay, Nick, here's where you got to listen, buddy. Show me your eyeballs, okay? Here's where you're listening. I've been there. I'm, I'm from there. I am the one you're supposed to listen to. So, Nick, I understand that I started using seminary language. And, Nick, I understand that I simplified it a little bit. But I can see, my friend Nicodemus, that you're still not getting it. So have a seat. Let me tell you a story. He says, because whether you're 8 or 80, we all connect to a story. We see this story in verse 14. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. March 12th, 2017. We read that verse. In fact, most likely we skim past that verse because we're starting to get excited because it's coming to John 3.16. That's right, we're going to draw on 316 somebody. That's the most important verse in the entire Bible. It's held up on signs at baseball games. We can't wait to get there. Forgive me if I'm being blasphemous. I think verse 14 is the most important verse in this passage. I think it's the key verse in this passage. What Jesus is doing is introducing a story that goes back to what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness back when they were wandering. 
It was after the miracle-laced exodus from slavery, but before entering into the promised land. In one verse, in fact, in about eight small words, Jesus tells an entire story. The story is found in Numbers chapter 21, and it starts in verse 4. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Or, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. And they began speaking against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing here to eat, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them. I hate snakes with a passion. I don't even like to read this. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses, and they cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole that anyone who was bitten by the snake, by a snake, could look at the bronze snake on the pole and be healed. You see what the story is about? Did you hear what it's about? It is not just about a, a bunch of whining and complaining people who are getting their due. No, no. This story is about second birth. The story is about new life. The story is about fresh life. I imagine that the people in Numbers 21, when they were bitten, they knew that was going to happen. They knew they were going to die because they had watched their friends and family members get bitten and die. Okay? So when somebody who was still living got bit, did they go to their tent and lay down and think, okay, if I just put my feet up, I'm going to be okay? No. They knew they were going to die. When they got bit, did they go to, to the high priest Aaron and say, would you rub some of that magical healing balm on me? No, because they knew they would die. When they got bit, did they reach into their backpacks, grab the travel size first aid kit, pull out that little yellow snake bite suction thing, stick it on their leg and start pumping like the venom was actually going to come out? No, they knew they would die. They knew that nothing they could do on their own would save them. They knew that the only thing they could do was put their eyes on what God told them to put their eyes on, and then they would be healed. Then they would be saved. So as they looked up at this snake on a pole when they were healed, you've got to, you've got to imagine that they thought, oh my goodness, it's like I've been born again. It's like I'm having a fresh start. I tell you what, those guys there, they, they, they knew that the snake on the pole didn't have any magical power. It was made out of bronze. They probably watched as Moses, just like we play with Play-Doh, got, got that and made that snake out, stuck it on a pole. They watched somebody else hold the pole up. They knew that when they looked at the pole, it was not the snake that was healing them. They knew it was a God thing. It was God working. It was God's power. It was God working in a way that they could not understand and they could not explain. Are you tracking with me, First Church? 
Somebody said no or somebody said go? Hello. Back in John chapter 3. Nicodemus would have known that story. In the few short words that Jesus said, he would have known that entire story. In fact, he may have had ancestors that were bitten, looked up at the snake, were saved by God's power. So when Jesus told the rest of the story, I've got to believe Nicodemus got it. I've got to believe he understood. The rest of the story is this. We'll start in verse 14. We'll read through 17. Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. That's the story that Jesus told Nicodemus. And I don't think that Jesus had to, to explain it anymore. I don't think he had to handhold Nicodemus anymore. In fact, I am 100% confident that Nicodemus got it, that he understood. How can I say that? Is it because at the end of this passage, Nicodemus says, Jesus, I finally get it. No. Nicodemus doesn't say another word in this story. In fact, to my knowledge, he doesn't have another word in all of Scripture. So how do I know he got it? If you flip to John chapter 19, verse 33, that's the end of the story, okay? We, we know what happens in those chapters. We know that Jesus is lifted up, like he talked about, on a cross. We know the story. We know the account was brutal. We know that Jesus died on that cross. John chapter 19, verse 33 and following. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he had already died. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you can also believe. Okay, so what happened after that? Verse 38. After Joseph of Arimathea, afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body down. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He had brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. And following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with spices and long sheets of linen cloth. And the place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation before the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus' body there. Did you see it? At what appeared to be the end, Nicodemus was there. He was keeping his eyes on Jesus. The Son of Man had been lifted up just like Jesus had said he would. And who was there? Who was looking for his salvation? Who was keeping his eyes fixed on this thing on a pole so that he could have this new life? Nicodemus. With Joseph of Arimathea came Nicodemus, the man who had come at night. Nicodemus had come to Jesus at dark, hoping to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. And he got that. 
And the conversation he had wasn't what he expected. It was difficult. It was confusing. And it took a Galilean rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. It took Jesus taking the complex and not so understandable and simplifying it in a way that Nicodemus understood. My question to us this morning is, First Church, do we understand? Do we understand? In the story of the poisonous snakes, when the people's eyes were on the thing God told them to keep their eyes on, they were saved. In the story of being with Jesus after dark, when Jesus tells Nicodemus what he needs to keep his eyes on, I believe Nicodemus was saved. Do we understand that? Jesus was the answer to the longing and the yearning that Nicodemus had experienced. Jesus is the answer to the longing and the yearning that we have. There's no salvation apart from him. There's no way we can have that born again from above, radical life change type of new birth that is talked about in Scripture without looking to Jesus. So my question is, have we looked there? My question is, where are our eyes? Are they focused on Christ? If they're not, today might be the day you need to make that choice and say, you know what, that's where my eyes are going to be. I understand now because Jesus told Nicodemus a story. I understand it. In just a a few moments, we're going to take communion together. I'll explain it in just a few moments. During that time when we're taking communion and during the the last two songs, I'll be back in the corner. And if you want to talk more about this, if, if you want to say, hey, you know what, I've had my eyes on Jesus in the past and they just haven't been lately, but I want to restart that thing again, come, come back and talk to me. If maybe you've never understood the story in this way and you want to come back and make that choice for the first time, come back and talk to me. I'll help point you in the direction you need to go. The author of Hebrews talks about running the race that is set before us, this race of life, this race of faith. And he says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion, the author, who initiates and perfects our faith. The faith in Jesus that we have, whether we've had it for decades or whether it's beginning today, it's a gift from God. The salvation that we get from Jesus, it's a gift from God. Being born again is a gift from God. I was reading this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I was just taken by this. Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy... It is his, by, by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. On any given Sunday, we have the opportunity to use big churchy words. To use uh, words that, you know, only like two and a half of us might understand. Today, it really is as simple as talking to a second grader. It's all about Jesus. That's what this entire thing is about. Do we understand? Where are our eyes? Let's pray.
Jesus, I want to thank you for the work you did (laughs) before the cross. I want to thank you for the work you did with a man named Nicodemus at night. Jesus, you you made the complex and you, you took the complex and you made it simple. And I thank you for that. God, because so often I don't understand. And I need you to talk to me like I'm a second grader. And this morning you did. You quite simply said, James, this entire thing is about Jesus. So, Father, help me keep my eyes fixed on Christ. Help me keep my eyes fixed on the cross, which is no longer, you're no longer hanging there. We know the story. We know the end. We know you died. You were buried. You were, you were resurrected. But we know that because of the cross, we can look to you and be saved. So, God, in all the times where it is tempting to make this way more difficult than it really needs to be, help me just to remember that it is about Jesus. Help us keep our eyes focused on you, who initiates, who authors, who completes our faith. I thank you for the gift of it. And I pray, Father, as we are taking communion together, I pray that, that we would be reminded that the, that the bread we eat represents your body that was broken for us. I pray that we would be reminded that the, that the cup we drink from represents your blood that was shed for us. I pray, Lord, that you would use it to nourish us spiritually. God, keep our eyes where they need to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. For communion today, uh, I've asked Jason and Elena to come. Uh, if you're here on Ash Wednesday, you, you know the routine. Um, you guys move to the middle aisles and then come forward. Go ahead and take the little wafer, take the cup, and then return to your seats by the outside. You can take it whenever you are ready. I do this today because sometimes when our eyes need to be, uh, to be directed to something, it requires actually taking some steps. It requires moving towards something. That's why we're actually coming forward today. Now, I understand there's some people in boots, walking boots, who may not be able to walk. Uh, I understand there's some people who are over the age of 25 who might not be able to walk. We will bring the elements to you if you can't make it up here. But for the rest of you, I encourage you, when you are ready, come to the middle, come on up, take it, return to the outsides, and participate in the reminder of the saving grace of Jesus. The worship team's gonna sing a song that just they sing, and then there'll be another song after that they invite you to join in on. Use this time to continue asking the questions that God has been asking us in this series. Where is your heart? Are we ready to respond? And where are your eyes? Jason, Elena, 